title of the sermon this morning is Fader Chance Part 5. We're going to do a little review since it's been two weeks since we've been together in Romans. If you remember, at the very beginning of the sermon series, that's just witchcraft there. I mean, <laughs> how can that possibly... Good idea. See? Leave it to a Gen Xer. Okay. Thank you. All right. If you remember, at the very beginning of this sermon series, we took a trip uh, together down Sovereignty Lane. Talked about God's sovereignty a lot. And that direction took us to a place that revealed the truth about God's sovereignty according to Scripture. God's sovereignty according to Scripture. Namely, that our God is in control of and over everything. And and we saw that He is in control over everything. Even our Zoom app. Remember, we talked about Jacob and Esau, Romans 9, 16. So then, Paul says, it, meaning election, does not depend on the man who wills or runs, but the God who has mercy. And the word run there means works. The man who wills with his own will or works doesn't matter on those things, election unto salvation, but it's all 100% up to God God regenerates the heart, saves the soul. We learned that God carries out his purposes for his glory and that there's nothing in the universe that can thwart his progress or his purposes. His sovereign will is always done. We also learned that his purposes are always good although we may not see it in this life all the time, his purposes are always good. We even see in Scripture in numerous places that he allows evil to accomplish his good purposes. And as such, he doesn't, listen, he doesn't invite us to the table of theological inquiry. You understand what I mean? He doesn't ask us to try and ascertain why he does this or does that or does it the way he does it. He makes himself very clear that we are just simply by faith to trust him. Why? Because everything that he accomplishes accomplishes in our lives, especially our salvation, he does so by way of of his son. He does so by way of the shed blood of his very own son. And that's why we should trust him in everything. I want you to really think about that for a minute. If you were to willfully sacrifice 
the very life of your only child to demonstrate, let's just say hypothetically, to demonstrate your love for me, okay? And my response to that act was to question your love and loyalty toward me anyway, despite the sacrifice on your part, I would hope that you would punch me in the throat. I just gave up. You just gave up your only son for me, and I'm questioning you. But we do that to God. We really do at times, don't we? So point being is God makes this colossal sacrifice, his love for us, and we question him. Still getting feedback. It's as low as it'll go. So, and obviously in scripture, the scripture that I that I was just referring to in that um, that one minute spiel was John three sixteen. God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son for us. And that's why we should trust him was my point. And so consequently and therefore too, we are in no position to put God on trial ever in regard to anything that he allows in our lives. And that can be a very difficult pill to swallow at times. We have enough um, yahoos in history and in the here and now, putting our God on trial, people in the news media, people in music, in comedy, putting our God on trial with whatever their pet, you know, propaganda is that they're peddling at the time. Whatever joke they're peddling or um, pontificating about how terrible God is. We don't need any more of it. And we especially don't need it coming from the church. In our text, Romans chapters 9 through 11, remember we're doing that in a big chunk, okay? We are taught by the Apostle Paul that we are especially not to question God, especially not question God in regard to the doctrine of election. And remember chapter 9, if you want to look at it, chapter 9 verses 19 through 24, Paul tells us that the potter... God has a right to do whatsoever he desires with his lump of clay. And at the very thought of us questioning God in this regard, Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Doesn't the potter have a right over the clay? to make one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable? What if he makes the dishonorable just to raise him up and knock him down and show his mercy and his glory to the vessels of mercy, his, his children? And if you are one of God's elect, you should thank God every day that your human failure and my human failure hasn't slash doesn't jeopardize 
God's sovereignty in electing you. It hasn't, and it won't, because there's nothing that we do or have done in the past that jeopardizes that election. That election is purely based upon his grace and mercy. We all know that, just reviewing. You should thank him for the reality of Romans 9, 11, and 12, where Paul makes it clear that he chose Jacob before he was born and before he had a chance to do anything to try to earn his salvation, God's singular electing decision is sovereign based solely upon his choice and not those twins who had yet not been born and had yet not done anything good or bad. If it did depend on us and what we do or what we've done, he would have never elected us. And that's the thing that we need to be thankful for, his 100% pure grace. Now we're going to move into chapters 10 and 11. And remember, I said before, we're going to take it in a chunk. We're going to go back to Romans 9 in future weeks. We're going to keep going back and forth between 9, 10, and 11. Please don't forget, I know I reminded everyone of this two weeks ago. I want to remind everyone again, especially those that are listening on the Internet and didn't hear the sermon two weeks ago. Please don't forget that I, I will attempt to answer those questions that pop up in your mind about the harder, harder doctrines, doctrines um, not only like election, but the so-called problem of evil and the existence of God and proving the existence of God philosophically and scripturally. We'll get to that later. Now, chapter 10 is where the Apostle Paul outlines Israel's failure to submit to the righteousness of God. I'm going to say that again because the entire sermon hinges on that. Chapter 10 is where the Apostle Paul outlines Israel's failure to submit to the righteousness of God. If you will remember in chapter 9, verse 4 and verse 5, Paul outlines all of the advantages that Israel had as God's chosen people. Yet despite those advantages, the prophets, the Mosaic law, etc., they still cannot be saved without faith in Christ. Think about that for a minute. The Apostle Paul, as we know, was trained as a Pharisee. His entire life was devoted to the cause of Israel, his, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so, with that said, what does God peg Paul to do before Paul was born? He calls him to be a minister to the Gentiles. The opposite of everything that he trained for. We see that in Galatians chapter 1, 
verses 15 and 16. But that does not stop Paul from ministering to his kinsmen. And it doesn't stop Paul from being gravely concerned about his kinsmen. And when we look at Romans 10, 1 through 4, if you look there, Paul... At all. That would explain why there's only three people left online. When the volume's up, we had... Um... Yeah. I'll send out a text later. Um... Romans 10, 1 through 4, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. One more time on the fourth verse. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews had religious zeal Paul had religious zeal. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, we read Paul saying, And I, Paul, was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But church, religious zeal is not saving grace. Religious zeal is not saving grace. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 with me, please. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 16. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There are so many people out there today who have a tremendous zeal and eagerness for religion. And at the same time, they are traveling on the broad road that leads to hell. 
Why? We just read why. Romans 10, 2 through 4. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to right scriptural doctrine. Not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, the word ignorant, if you look it up in the dictionary, means to not know. Okay, so they don't know the righteousness of God. They seek to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's Paul's summation right there. Christ, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. These verses that apply to Israel also apply to many people today. Verse 4, that key verse, means that Jesus completes and fulfills the law. It means that the law is inevitably leading to Christ. The law leads to Christ. It means that righteousness in Christ ends all other attempted means of justification, including the law. I'm going to say that again. There's a, lot, there's a lot of doctrine in there. Christ is the end of the law. That means that Jesus completes and fulfills the law. It means that the law inevitably leads to Christ. It means that righteousness in Christ ends all other attempted means of justification, including the means of the law. You can't be justified by the law. You have to be justified by Christ. Paul's kinsmen are trying to be justified by the law and by external practices. How many of you know a lot of Christian, Christian in quotes, denominations, persuasions, faith traditions, who, who do that? They rely on sacraments for salvation. Nowhere in Scripture do sacraments save. Paul says, Christ was delivered up and raised for our justification. Romans 4, 24 and 25. This is where the Jews missed it. They sought to make themselves righteous by keeping the law instead of embracing Christ's righteousness provided for them through the death and burial and resurrection of the Messiah. People today, and I don't say this flippantly, are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They are seeking to establish their own righteousness, thinking that they will please God, or they will please God enough. They don't understand at all Christ's imputed righteousness and the adoption of the elect into the kingdom of God. I mean, just turn on the radio, Christian radio, popular Christian radio, sermon after sermon after sermon, program after program, and just find, try to find 
in one week of listening to all those sermons and all those teachings on that Christian radio, try to find in one week one mention of imputed righteousness. Just look, listen for the word imputed. You'll never hear it unless you're listening to um, Grace to You or Ligonier. You're probably not going to hear it. Pastors don't understand the doctrine, the doctrines of justification, sanctification, glorification. They don't preach them. They don't teach them. They avoid key foundational Christian doctrine. I talk to other pastors and I can't believe what comes out of their mouth. I, I wouldn't let them change a flat tire on my car, let alone care for my soul. There's no substance. There's no theology at all. Most important of all, there's no mention of sin and forgiveness of sin. There's no mention of holiness. There's no mention of being separate from the world. There's no talk about redemption. There's no talk about Christ's death being a ransom for many. There's no talk about propitiation through faith in Christ's spilled blood. And there's certainly no talk about God's wrath and God's justice. But, indeed, there is talk about the latest celebrity pastor and his bandwagon books and teaching materials and where to get them at a good price. And there is talk about the big church on the hill hosting the quote-unquote conference on how to grow your church through friendship evangelism. And there's a workshop on how to effectively pass out bottles of cold water in the name of Jesus at the finish line of the Pittsburgh Marathon. Now, if you go to a third world country, in a village in the bush where a 10-year-old has to walk 10 miles each day to get two gallons of water for his mother and his brothers and his dad's dead and the water he brings back gives the whole family dysentery so bad that they can't function while well, then handing out a bottle of water but get them to listen to you about Jesus. But catching somebody, you know, going into South Hills Village Mall in February in the snow and the cold and giving them a cup of hot chocolate in Jesus' name is not going to fill your church. It's just not. It doesn't work. But that's what we talk about in these workshops. I've been to them. I'm seeing a new trend a new and disturbing trend. Churches are popping up everywhere. Predominantly 20s and 30-somethings. I sat across from a couple in a restaurant 
who are in their 70s, early 70s, and I've known them for many years. They have two sons in their 30s, and I taught both of them in Sunday school when they were in high school. Both boys are white-collar professionals that make a lot of money. One is on his second marriage. These are kids that were raised in the church. Second marriage. The other one is divorced from his first wife, and he lives with his fiance. Both boys have, have recently become heavy drinkers. Let me be clear. If you want to have a drink, I believe that that's, you're free to do that in Scripture. But drunkenness is a sin. Period. So, both boys have recently become heavy drinkers. They attend two different churches in two different states. They're not even in the same state. But they both go to the same type of church. Both churches, their parents tell me, the pastors not only encourage the congregants to drink, but after worship, practice, and after different ministries at the church, like Bible studies, they go to local bars regularly. And they get drunk. They drink strong liquor and they get drunk. And the, the mother of these boys was telling me about all of the strong liquor that is in hard liquor that is in their houses, their homes, for their kids to see, their grandkids to see. And they were very concerned about this. Then they told me that their one son who leads a home group Bible study for this church um, he serves them and the entire Bible study group drinks hard liquor while they are having a Bible study. And they put this all under the umbrella, going to the pub um, after church and whatnot, under the umbrella of evangelism. And they say, oh, well, you know, Luther went to the pub to evangelize. And a lot of men of God went to the pub to talk about theology and so therefore it's okay to go to the pub and do these things and my question right away is well how many people in the bar have they led to the Lord and how many people in the bar now go to their church that didn't go there before and of course the answer is none or at least none that they know of. So I say that to say this. These churches that I see popping up not only do things like this, but they also condone the one son lives with his girlfriend out of wedlock and teaches a Bible study. So they also condone sexual promiscuity outside of marriage. And that's okay to lead a Bible study if you're in that lifestyle. And this all comes under, you know, being permissible 
by these church leaders and these pastors because the way your parents, who are in their early 70s, and the way I, being in my late 50s, interpret scripture is for yesteryear. It's the old way. This is the new way. This is freedom in Christ. This is liberty in Christ. And these things that are written about in Scripture were written to a certain specific group at a certain specific time about problems that they were having that were isolated in that church or in that area. And they'll even quote those things. And they completely twist and manipulate Scripture to create an atmosphere and an environment where, frankly, they can just sin as much as they want. And they're okay with it. And they get this. I mentioned, I mentioned the authors four weeks ago, I believe, who started all this back in the mid-90s. And, you know, one of them's Brian McLaren, and the name of his, his book, one of his books, A New Kind of Christian, and the other one, A Generous Orthodoxy. Well, A New Kind of Christian, what do you think that's about? A Christian that can do things that other Christians can't do because he's enlightened in the way he interprets scripture. And then a generous orthodoxy. What do you think that's about? Orthodoxy, doing doctrine the right way, the orthodox way, the way we've always done it since the beginning of the church. Well, we could be generous with that because all those things don't apply today. And these are the books and these are the types of teachings that these guys buy into and they teach their entire church this. And as a result, we've got people on the outside who are unsaved and unchurched looking in at these churches, at these home groups, at these conversations at the pub. And they're saying, you're no different than I am. So why do I need your Jesus? You do the same things I do. You get drunk. You live with your girlfriend. So... We need to pray because these churches, these types of churches are increasing a lot, especially in this country. And the, the pastors of these churches teach their congregations, by the way, that Jesus was a rebel. He eradicated the religious norms of his day. And he challenge the religious leaders of his day. And so today, you need, church, this is what they say to their churches, you need to challenge these stick-in-the-mud Orthodox Christians of yesteryear with a new generous orthodoxy. Be a new kind of Christian. You've got freedom and liberty in Jesus. We need to come against this as a church, as the church, we need to combat it. We need to talk about it. We need to pray about it and come against it. It's antichrist. It's antichrist. Okay.
hippie Jesus with his restrictive rules will move on from, from him. Now, why am I telling you this other than what I just said about fighting it? It's in complete contrast to what the Bible teaches. Our God is a holy God, not a hippie liberating everyone from stringent age-old rules. And may I suggest that if you are calling yourself a Christian and mocking God with an habitually sinful lifestyle, if you're in this camp, whoever's out there in internet land, you need to stop doing it today. Because if you truly are one of the elect, if you truly are saved, God's going to cut you down, in the words of Johnny Cash. He doesn't take lightly to his children dabbling in sin. And he will chastise us. He'll break us. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Israel found out real quick about that God. He killed them. He punished them. Chastised them. He turned nations that weren't even thinking about them, weren't even on their radar. He turned them against them, the Assyrians, Habakkuk. And then he punished the Assyrians whose heart he had just turned against the Israel. You don't want to mess with this God, is the point. You don't want to be on his bad side. Now, is he a loving God? Of course he's a loving God. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Holiness of God, which we just did. Steve, was that in Sunday school or was that on Wednesday night? I can't remember. Sunday school. Says this. Okay, I'm going to read this. Some people assume that if we believe in Christ, we never have to worry about changing our lives. Justification by faith may be viewed as a license to sin. If we have the righteousness of Christ, why should we worry about changing our sinful ways? Since our good works can't get us into heaven, why should we be all concerned about them at all? Such questions never ought to pass over the lips of a truly justified person, Sproul says. He goes on to say, saving faith immediately brings forth the fruits of repentance and righteousness. I like that word immediately because it's true. Saving faith immediately brings forth the fruits of repentance and righteousness. When I got saved, changed on a dime. Friends of mine, one friend of mine, he was doing acid and coke one night and the next night he was in church, literally forsook his entire old way of life. Sproul says, if we say we have faith, but no works follow, that is a clear evidence that our faith is not genuine. True faith always produces real conformity to Christ. 
if there is no sanctification, it means that there never was any justification. This is the trouble that we're seeing today. And it was the problem with Paul's kinsmen in chapter 10 of Romans. The Jews rejected Christ, their Messiah. They would not submit to the righteousness of God, but instead they tried to establish their own righteousness. I'll do it my way. Frank Sinatra They didn't understand that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4 What does Paul say in the beginning of chapter 10? Let, let's say, look at verse 8 of Romans 10. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what we should be teaching and preaching in our churches. It's the gospel. I just read the gospel. Let's pray.